The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn your attention to Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 1, very familiar words. We pick up in the middle of the first chapter of Luke. The first thing that Luke has told us in this Gospel, which he says in the preface, was assembled from eyewitness testimony and logically put together as an account of things for others to know. The first thing he told of was the prediction of John the Baptist to be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And that prediction, of course, is just prior to and a parallel of the birth of Jesus to Mary. So it is when we we begin reading at verse 26, the sixth month indicates the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Listen to God's word here as I read Luke 1.26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's own holy word. It is without error and full of power as he spoke through prophets and apostles. Here's a phrase you say many, many Sundays in this church without thinking. When we repeat the Apostles' Creed, you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. You say that so automatically that it's probably just part of those subconscious words that come off your tongue. And you probably don't think of the fact that no other factual item 
reported in the entire narrative of what we call Christmas is more important than the virgin conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary without a biological father sponsoring his birth. Christmas has very little point unless Jesus was truly begotten in this way that God revealed in his word. If, as some people claim, he was the illegitimate offspring of Mary's infidelity, some say a Roman soldier or some other man of Nazareth, if that is so, he was not God in flesh. Without the virgin birth, Jesus claims throughout the Gospels and claims about him throughout the epistles of the Bible would be lies, and his salvation would be a hoax. And if that is so, then we are doomed. A great deal hinges on the virgin birth. During the first 18 centuries of Christianity, as leaders and theologians debated various doctrinal topics and tried to assemble a systematic pattern of theology out of what the Bible said, it's interesting to know that the virgin birth was basically accepted without argument. There were a lot of discussions about who Jesus was and what different things said about him meant, but there wasn't really a big debate about the virgin birth throughout the early centuries of many councils that met and tried to understand these truths. And also, as you come into the period of the Reformation, scholars like Luther and Calvin certainly endorsed the virgin birth as being entirely biblical. Early scientists, I mentioned some of these folks the other week, people like Blaise Pascal and Galileo, Isaac Newton, others who were Orthodox Christian believers had no problem with endorsing the virgin birth. I find it therefore rather ironic that here we are in the 21st century and our scientists have taken advances in biology and the science of birth and being able to uh, create ways of people conceiving who have difficulty with that and so on. And here's a, here are the scientists who have taken the DNA code and uncoded it or understood it to a point where they can even, in some cases, influence it. Here's the age where people would say they can have fertilized embryos in banks that can be saved for possibly creating human spare parts. Here's the day when the U.S. Supreme Court has arrogantly assumed a godlike power over a woman's womb so that people can vehemently deny that it is God who has authority to work his purposes in conception and birth greater than any science or any chemistry lab. Well, we should be precise in defining terms. It really isn't accurate to say virgin birth. It's really the virgin conception of Jesus that the Bible teaches, that a microscopic dot of an egg of a woman, a young woman, we think, most likely, was subdivided into a clump of cells that then became larger and larger. Many of you, certainly almost all of you, have probably seen an ultrasound of an unborn child these days. And you look at it and you say, look at that. There's an eye. There's a foot at a very, very early time. We believe the scriptures report that no man had intimate relations with Mary up to the hour of her birth, and then she later became Joseph's wife 
And they did later have several natural children. But Mary's firstborn, named Jesus, was a unique birth in all of human history. Just think, out of the billions, literally billions of all the human beings who have ever been, Jesus was the only one who actually pre-existed his mother. That's pretty amazing and very unique indeed. Heaven's prince reigned at his father's side as the co-creator. We've been preaching sermons looking at the person and greatness of Christ and we started with Colossians 1 that said he was there at the creation. We looked at John 1 that affirms that as well. That he was involved in the creation. He, he was begotten, not made. He was different than everyone else. He was God in flesh, sharing a pile of straw, probably with a donkey and a couple of cows. Well, before you can view this birth of Christ as being relevant to your life, I think you must be clear that we're talking about something that is entirely taught by the Word of God and not just by this one passage that I read for you from Luke 1. So I first want to, believe it or not, I'm going to really quickly fly by six different passages that in some way give us evidence for the virgin conception of Jesus as being a consistently biblical doctrine. The first text is all the way back at the very early part of Scripture, Genesis 3, verse 15. This is the first prophecy in the whole Bible, certainly the first prophecy of Christ. It comes in the Garden of Eden as God is pronouncing a sentence of judgment upon Satan, the tempter. And strangely enough that Jesus would get into this, we read there the tempter being told, the offspring of the woman will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Believe it or not, that actually reigns as possibly one of the most amazing scriptures that we have, coming as early as it does and prophesying a contest of great epic conflict between Satan and the Son of God. And the reason I refer to it is the strange way Jesus is designated in that prophecy. He's called the offspring of the woman. In a day when patriarchy ruled, it mattered who your father was. It wasn't necessarily talked about as a common thing who your mother was. But to call him offspring of the woman at that early prophetic juncture is a most remarkable thing. Well, then next passage is another one many of you would guess. It's Isaiah 7, verse 14. And this comes out of the historic fabric of the nation of Israel when the king was one Ahaz, who was rather a skeptic, an unbeliever, and God had revealed different things to him, signs of things that were going to happen. And Ahaz was famous for saying, you know, he was a guy from Missouri. I'll believe it when I see it. I've got to touch it and handle it before I believe it. So the Lord was giving him another sign that was not necessarily going to be seen even in his day, but it would be seen by the people of Israel. And Isaiah 7:14 starts with the word, Behold, which is a call to attention. Look, I'm saying something now of great importance. And the Lord predicted that a wonderful child would be born to the people of Israel and that that child would be born of a virgin. A virgin will conceive and bear a son 
and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. People try to look at that prophecy in Isaiah and they say, well, let's see, that isn't necessarily saying that his mother was a virgin because the Hebrew language uses the one of a couple different words it could have used for a young woman. It uses the word Alma, which really means young woman. It does not specifically say a virgin. However, it's important to note that every single time Alma is used in the Hebrew Bible, it does refer to an unmarried woman. And so it is saying that an unmarried woman would conceive and bear a son and call his name God present with us. Some people said, well, maybe that was meant to refer to the son of Ahaz, who would be prince and later king, Hezekiah. But that can't be because interestingly, in light of prophecy, we know from putting dates together that Hezekiah was already born when that prophecy was given. He was already nine years old. So to speak about him in a future tense doesn't make sense, and it doesn't make sense to call him God with us. Therefore, Isaiah 7.14 still stands as a key prediction of the virgin birth. And that becomes even more true with our third text, which is Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18 through 25. There you can see Matthew claiming that the birth of Jesus to Mary fulfilled the Isaiah prophecy. He specifically cites the Isaiah text and says, this is to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet said. And Matthew also shows us in his giving an account of Joseph's side of things. Luke tells Mary's side. Matthew tells Joseph's point of view. And what do we see with Joseph in the text of Matthew 1? We see a man totally amazed and surprised to find that his fiancée is pregnant. His surprise is so great that he contemplates doing what the law allowed. Being engaged was a legal agreement that had to be broken literally by divorce, but you didn't live together while engaged. And so Joseph, it says, contemplated taking the writ of divorce and putting her away quietly. didn't want to put her to shame didn't want to make it a federal case, but he wanted to do what the law allowed him to do until God in a dream directed him to accept Mary as his fiancée and protect her and go forward with the agreement. But Joseph clearly was dumbfounded by what God was doing until special revelation showed him what he had to do. Well, there's a fourth text, and it's the one I read, Luke 1, today which you might notice Luke, the author, repeatedly in that text calls Mary a virgin. When God's angel refers to her the wonderful thing that's going to happen, Luke keeps on insisting she had not known a man and that her question was, how? How shall this thing be? I have not known a man, she says. And the answer she gets is a mysterious one. It says, that the power of the Most High will overshadow your womb. Now, I always point out, and I think it's a very formidable point, that the man writing this gospel was Luke, the Greek physician. And in that time in the Western world, medicine was not more advanced anywhere than among the Greeks. These people weren't stupid. They already understood quite a few things that other countries, more primitive countries, had not yet learned. Luke certainly, as a physician, had delivered babies. 
He certainly knew where babies come from and how they were born and why they were born. And as a trained physician, he was reporting that he believed Jesus was miraculously conceived. What about the Gospel of Mark? That's a fifth contributing text I speak about quickly. Mark, well, maybe you know, you say, wait a minute, Mark doesn't have anything to add to this because he doesn't tell of the the nativity of Jesus as Matthew and Luke do. He enters right into the adult ministry of Christ, but he does have something that tangentially contributes. When Mark 6.3 mentions the Nazareth neighbors of Jesus watching his ministry begin and seeing him do wonderful things, and they say this, isn't this the carpenter? the son of Mary? Curious. Joseph was probably dead by then, but still he would be honored, Jesus would be honored as the son of Joseph if he was the son of Joseph. And the implication you get there is the neighbors knew there was something strange about all of this. The the story was afloat across the back fences that he was not the son of Joseph. And so here he is now 30 years old and they're calling him the son of Mary. That seems to be a telltale reminder of the local gossip that had been around for years. And then finally you have another small indication of things in Galatians 4, verse 4. Sometimes the comment is made, well, Paul didn't say much about the virgin birth. He says this much at least, it's a small thing, that Jesus was born of woman, born under the law. Like the Genesis text, that's a very curious text, born of woman. That isn't the way you talked about a person's birth. You usually would have said human flesh or born of a human father or something like that. At least it's odd, if not proving a great deal in and of itself. Those texts are basically the main data bank that we have of God's Word about the virgin conception of Jesus. And they lead me to the firm statement that at the very least, if you're going to deny this doctrine or stand against this doctrine, you better know that you're standing against a consecutively well-stated, well-documented doctrine of Scripture. You're going to be rejecting what the Scripture affirms. If you say, well, You don't really mean that I have to think something as unscientific as that to be a Christian. Well, how many things are optional? Do you want a Christian faith that is a stripped-down version with none of the so-called options, or at least what you call options? Or do you want a Christian faith that is well-grounded and stated and documented by the authoritative book of God's Word through apostles and prophets who do believe he was born of a virgin conception. Well, all right, if, if you go with me, or maybe you don't go with me, but if you say, all right, I understand that's the biblical data, but even if I do believe it, so what? Does the virgin birth really make any difference or have any practical meaning for my life? Let me suggest it has a few. One is this. It influences whether your view of Jesus Christ is entirely rational and natural, that he's a natural man only, or that he is mysteriously supernatural. Colossians 2.9 says of Christ, in him the fullness of Godhead dwelt in a human body. 
That's the biblical Christ. I could give you a list as long as your arm of other scriptures to support that. He's not merely a man. He is a man, but he's not merely a man. And if you're going to say, well, okay, I'll venture one foot or so into this Christianity, but I can't go for some of these more mysterious things that he was a supernatural being, then once more you're standing against and you're denying the claims of the Word of God. We use the Nicene Creed today from 325 A.D. It has that fascinating phrase in describing Christ that he is very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Maybe you puzzle over that and you say, what in the world does that mean? And I will agree with you, there's mystery at the basis of that. Even though our faith is a reasonable faith, it doesn't necessarily like, uh, you know, working out geometry, have two lines coming and they meet together and you could say, okay, this is an obtuse angle or whatever. It has sometimes lines that don't seem to intersect, that are mysterious. And we are asked to accept things that are greater than our minds and our rational thinking. Even though we're to use our minds in Christianity, they don't always tell us everything we need to know. And this is one of the great mysterious areas. The resurrection is certainly a mysterious area, area that we don't entirely figure out how that happened. It asks us for faith, but it brings historical witnesses alongside to say what they saw and heard and, and what happened. And you don't have to abandon your brain to accept the mysteries of Christian faith. It tells us, certainly if we believe the supernatural version, it tells us when God became man in Christ, not at his baptism. That was an important moment. Jesus came and his cousin John the Baptist baptized him and there was a revelation from heaven attached to that and that was a great moment for him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him, said a voice that no one could understand where it came from. Well, that tells us that he became God or he was God present with man at his birth and conception, not just at his baptism at age 30, not just in the Garden of Gethsemane at age 33, not just on the cross. He was the Son of God in flesh before he uttered his first wail in his mother's arms. Before any hospital ultrasound test, if there had been such a thing, showed him even as a a dot the size of my little fingernail. He was the son of the highest from the very first. But I think the greatest thing that we need to think about when we think about what does this miraculous birth of Jesus mean for us is that it forms a template or a pattern for the kind of new spiritual birth that God wants to bring about in us as believers. Not how we're physically born, but how we are spiritually reborn. God wants to do in us what he did with his son, in a sense, in regenerating or quickening us to become a new creation. First, or John chapter 1 tells this. We looked at that text and many things in it that I wasn't even able to touch the last time. But John 1 includes this saying, that the pre-existent Christ became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And this was done with a result that we might become children of God, born not of natural descent 
or natural decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That just as Christ was born as a physical man, the Son of God by no human intimacy with a woman, the spiritual rebirth that we need is God's intervention by the Holy Spirit in us. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, something new altogether. There's an eternal side now to you that is going to dwell with Christ forever as he makes you alive, very much the same dynamic as the virgin birth. There is a fourth quick application of the virgin conception of Christ, and it takes us out into the social realm, I think, and the realm of Christian discipleship. And that is that as we contemplate the idea of how God became man in the person of Christ, it ought to absolutely give us a great reverence for all unborn life. If the eternal God entered life on this planet through a pinhead size embryo as the vehicle for his son, how can we neglect or mistreat the unborn child in the womb? We, the disciples of Jesus, must be protectors, guardians of the unborn and their mothers as if we were protecting Jesus himself. Mary was probably a a young girl. We think the text gives us to believe it was very common to be married in early teens. She might have been no more than 13 or 14 or 17 perhaps at the most. A young girl terrified in the societal dilemma that she had. Her neighbors had their mouths flapping over it. Looks like Mary's pregnant. How did that happen? A little social ostracism, a little religious high-handed looking at her and criticizing her. But let me ask you, if Mary perhaps violating, of course, what we believe the Scripture teaches, that sexual relations belong in marriage, was to come along in our congregation in this day and age, 2018, 2019, and be a 14 or a 17 or a 19-year-old without a husband and with a child, how would we receive her? Would we honor the child in her womb regardless of its origin? Would we be the protectors of a young woman in a vulnerable situation? This isn't a merely theoretical question, folks. Just ask your pastors. We're not going to give you names. But these are dilemmas we face. Would she have our mercy and our practical aid, or would our silent judgmentalism make the young woman feel that Planned Parenthood was her only refuge? Think about that. In the final analysis, the virgin conception of Jesus Christ is exhibit A of the power and wonder-working ability of God. And if you come to Christianity asking the question, well, must I believe this or is this optional? I sort of pity you because a faith that turns everything into optional is not biblical faith. And in 1 Corinthians 1, we read, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the wise. He chose lowly things and things that do not even exist yet to nullify things that are so that no one may boast. 
before him. When Mary wondered how this amazing event would occur, the angel said, it's God. With God, you don't have to ask that question. With God, nothing shall be impossible, Mary. The great theme of Christmas tells us our God is so great. He can condescend to be a fragile embryo and do work that would literally change the history of the entire world. And it tells us that no obstacle is too great for his wonder-working power. Likewise today, there is no heart of man or woman or boy or girl that is so dead that he cannot give you, in your circumstances, a miraculous new birth that will change you for time and eternity. And I pray, may Christ Jesus be born in Bethlehem straw and also in you, in your disbelieving, doubtful, trouble-riddled heart. May he be born in you today in great power. Amen. Dear Father, help us to approach this wonder again. Not trying to strip it down and say, is this optional? Do I need to believe this? Show us that it's all or nothing. That what you did in Jesus was an all or nothing. Stake it all on an embryo. It was your work and your way. What a wonderful God you are. I pray for your power to be acknowledged in some lives here today who need that new birth that only you can bring about. I pray it will be so in Jesus' name. Amen.